Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is Carol Burnett. What, uh, what brings you to Tara? You, you vixen, you. Stalin, I love you. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. That's Carol as Starlet O'Hara making a grand entrance wearing a set of curtains as a dress with the rod still attached. Harvey Corman is smitten as Captain Rat Butler in this Gone with the Wind parody on The Carol Burnett Show. The chemistry between the players on this show, Burnett, Corman, and also Vicki Lawrence, Tim Conway, and Lyle Wagoner, is legendary. The show ran for 11 seasons. The first five seasons have been recently released on DVD. They haven't been seen since airing over 40 years ago. It is incredible, and you see them, and it's the first time we did the uh, soap opera takeoff. The first huh. time, uh, you know, Vicki and her, when we started out, and we were pretty raw. Pretty raw. Well, we're going to get to that because when I watched the show, I saw so many little tells uh-huh. and so many little things about how you guys crack each other up, obviously. Oh, yes. Uh, there's there's things you guys do to each other. I know. And you can just see you almost with joy and almost loathing that they're like you're kind of torturing each it's other. It's like getting the giggles in church. Yes. You know, but the, Alec, when we started the show, uh, I wanted to do it as a live show. We couldn't really do it live because the studio, which I love that studio because it was it's like is that a little, TV City, TV City uh, Studio Thirty Three, which uh, is like a little theater. You know, it's like proscenium and and the seats are down. It's not like the tiered things that you have. You right. know, when when uh, other shows. You know, and so I loved that. We, but we couldn't. Um, there were no flies in the theater. By that I mean where you could fly the scenery in and out and really do a live show. But I. I wanted it to go fast I, I, because we had a studio audience there, and I couldn't stand to keep them waiting because if they get bored and sit there for a long time right. while we take our time changing clothes and so forth, right. we lose them. Right. So we lose that energy Momentum. and enthusiasm yeah. that, that you get when an audience is hot. So I would have a bet with the stagehands that I could do a skin-out change faster than they could move that sofa across the room. <laughs> and also, I didn't want um, I didn't want to stop and do pickups. If something went wrong, I figured, you know, unless the scenery fell down and knocked us out in the head, uh, I wanted to keep going. So when somebody would ad-lib or do a bit that we had not done before, we never broke up on purpose. Ever, right? Ever, I just well, let's roll. But it was with understood it. that you would ad lib. It was understood that that was. Well, we never said it. It just started happening, so we just let it go. Who was the bad boy in church usually? Tim Conway. Tim, I was say, he seemed like. Do you have comedy insurance? He asks. I know. Was, it, I know, wasn't oh that brilliant God, when he said believe. it? Yeah, yeah. Because Harvey believe. was trying to put him on, and then Tim came up and topped him. You know? <laughs> I don't suppose you have comedy insurance down oh there, do you? Yeah, it was brilliant. I don't believe when you watch this shows, when you watch these shows, your lost episodes, so that audiences 
from our show understand that it was 67 through 78. Correct. Those 11 years. And the first five years uh, are the shows you're referring to as the lost episodes. And when you see, so this is the crowd young. Yes. And you see over 11 years, people get older. Yes. Harvey has a nice kind of auburn color to his hair. <laughs> and then Harvey has like a, a steel color to his yeah, hair. And Vicky. And Vicky grows older. And everybody, not in any bad way, but everybody, well, 11 years is a long time. You don't see that on TV We anymore. matured. We matured. <laughs> but I will say, with all sincerity, that I don't think, you, you'd have to go to Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, in my mind, to find someone who is as trim and fit and lithe as you on stage. <laughs> you never had to exercise a day in your life. The show was your workout. The That's things true. you do. Right. When you're scissoring your way across the floor during the fire yes. scene because yes. you think the fire is happening, I look at you and I go, like, my God, look at this woman, what she's doing to herself. <laughs> was it physically as demanding as it seemed? I never felt that. You didn't? No. I, I, I you're just, just in it. Well, you know, you, the the adrenaline starts pumping when you're performing and everything. And I, I'm really not that lithe. I mean, I, I still can't touch my toes without bending my knees. I'm not that good. But I was able to do a lot of stunts and things like that. I don't know. I just threw myself into it. Yeah, you don't think about it when you're doing it. And I never hurt myself. I got a few bruises here and there once in a while, but I never broke a bone. I, jumping out of windows, falling downstairs, yeah. doing crashing oh. through doors with Burt Reynolds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that and and there you do that exit with Burt Reynolds. I mean, I always joke with people and say when I was young, and I was younger, I was pretty fit. Uh -huh. I said now I'm older. And I probably could do some of those things again, but it's more my doubts or my more of my concerns about it. I say to somebody, like in my real life, I might not be as physically engaged as I was, but if you pay me a couple of million dollars, I can still run down the street with a gun in my hand. <laughs> That's funny. It's always funny. I can do it if the character's doing it. <laughs> that, you know that if I'm is... saving a baby from climbing into a well. I, I, I totally agree. And uh, in fact, I never knew sometimes how I was going to do a character until I got into the outfit. Interesting. I worked from the outside in. You know, some actors work from the inside out. Right. I uh, There were lots of times I had no idea what I was going to do until I went into the costume fitting and saw what Bob Mackey had created for me. How, how, how did that union with him and that collaboration with him begin? Where did you first meet Bob? Well, when we were getting ready to do the show, and we said, you know, costuming is going to be really important because the costume designer isn't going to just design for me. That costume designer is going to design for every everybody you see on the screen. Dancers, singers, guest stars, rep company, everything you see has to be uh, coordinated by the one person. So um, we had seen um, Alice in Wonderland on television. I remember Carol Channing was the queen of diamonds or hearts or something like that, but fantastic, wonderful uh, costuming. And then I'd seen Mitzi Gaynor, uh, I think was in Vegas. Uh, and aside from the gorgeous gowns she wore, she also did a lot of fall down humor and, you know, fat suits and crazy outfits and so forth. And the common denominator was Bob Mackey. Mm. And we said, you know, we've got to meet Bob Mackey and see if maybe you know he would be the one. So we got in touch with him. And uh, he came over to our house, bing bong, I opened the door, and there stood this guy that looked like he was 12 years old. Yeah. 
just fresh and adorable. And he came in. He was about 24, 24, 25 years old. And we, he, we just liked him right away. We knew he had the talent. So we hired him right then on the spot. And it was one of the best decisions when you we say ever we, made. Who was we? My husband. Uh, just to t- talk about your husband. Well, Joe uh, Joe Hamilton right. uh, was the producer of the Gary Moore show. That's right. where we met. And so when I was going to do my show, uh, of course, he was going to be the producer. So we were— And you were on Broadway? I had been, and then we moved to California. How was that for you? Moving to California? Yeah. Well, you were I, ready? Was, I was raised there. Right. Oh. Yeah, I was raised in— By your grandmother. Uh, in Hollywood. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I knew you grew up in San Antonio. No, I grew up, I was seven years old. And you left. And then we left and moved to Hollywood. You go to Granny's house. That's right. Where, where in Hollywood? A one-room apartment, uh, one block north of Hollywood Boulevard. The one, that, now this is, you pulled on your ear. Yeah, that was to just say hi to say her. Say hello to her, yes, yes. And, she, and where was she at well, the end of her life? Still in California? She was still in California. Did she come and see? Well, she uh, she died before I got my show. Oh. But she had seen me do the Gary Moore show and the Ed Sullivan show and so forth. Was and she just thrilled by what you accomplished? Oh, yeah. Well, the, at first, when I got the chance to go to New York from California, because I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to be Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, you know, that. And she was not for it. She said, your blood's too thin. You'll be dead in a week in New York. Why do you think she said that? She didn't want me to go. She was trying to talk you out of it. Yeah. She didn't want to lose you. Correct. To show business. Correct. To the Sodom and Gomorrah of show business. Well, she just didn't want me to be away from her. To leave her. her. Yeah, Yeah, to leave her. But when I got my first show, it was a Paul Winchell Kitty TV show. I auditioned and I got a a gig on that. And I called Nanny and I said, Nanny, I'm going to be on Paul Winchell's show Saturday. And she said, well, say hello to me. And I said, Nanny, I don't think they're going to let me say hi, exactly. Nanny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we, uh, uh, I we figured out I'd pull my the ear, code. which meant hi, Nanny, I love you. And then later, when I got successful, it meant hi, Nanny, I love you. Your checks on the way. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And when you and when you go, how would you describe when you're on Gary Moore show? You're one of a company. Yes. And you come to Los Angeles to do your show. Mm-hmm. And you're part of a company, but you're not just part of a company. You're the star of the show, which you're a show. However, I remember remember Gary Moore, and I learned a lot from him. He was so wonderful. And it was his show, the Gary Moore show, and it was very popular variety, comedy variety show. And Derwood Kirby was a sidekick. Derwood Kirby. Derwood and me and uh, Marion Lauren were the second bananas. But he never treated us as second bananas. For instance, Alec, we would come in on a Monday to read the script for that week. And he'd look at it, and he'd say, and he'd have a joke or something. He'd say, you know, I can't, I can't, th- I, you know, give this joke to Durward. He can do it better than me, or give this line to Carol. She she can say it funnier than I can. So it was a true rep company, and that's what I learned about my show. Moore set a good example. He for you. set a true, you know. So his name was on it, but we were a true rep company. My name was, you know, at the the head of it. We were a true rep company because when that happens and you don't want to hog it, you know, uh, the show gets better. You give it to right. Tim. You give it give to the Harvey. Ball, you give it got to the hot hand. who's got, yeah, and, and do it, you know. Harvey. And, oh, you know, years ago when I was doing the Gary Moore show, one of the guests that week, uh, one week, was uh, Ed Wynn. Right. 
you know, the old wonderful vaudevillian comedian. And so we yeah. were sitting around lunch one day, and he was regaling us with stories and stuff. And he said he started to talk about the difference between a comic and a comedic actor. And Gary said, what, what is it? He said, well, a comic says funny things like Bob Hope. A comedic actor like Jack Benny says things funny. Wow. Is that good? So, Joe, your husband, yes. and you you get out to L.A., mm-hmm. you start to do the show. Who's in charge creatively? Who's the final word creatively? We both. You and your husband. We both. It's were. you and I Joe. Mean, we, yeah, we talked Who cast the show? Where did you find them? Well, uh, Harvey uh, was on the Danny Kay show. Danny right. had a comedy variety show, and Harvey was his— How many years did Kay's show run? You know, I don't know, five, yeah. Yeah, a six, few. something like yeah. More than two. Right. Yeah. And uh, he was going to go off the air. And we had seen his show and loved the show. And we said, this Harvey Corman is just sensational. It's like Carl Reiner to Sid Caesar and Art Carney to Jackie Gleason. You know, we wanted to get a rep company. We said, oh, my God. And Danny's show was going off the air. When we were going on, we said, let's get Harvey Corman. So that's what we did. I practically attacked him in a parking lot at CBS. <laughs> I think we'd already called his agent, but I he, I saw, ran into him. In the, not I wasn't in a car, but I ran into him in the parking lot at CBS, and I just grabbed. Him. I said, "You got to be on my show. You oh, got to be on my." So we got him, and, uh, and Tim. Well, Tim wasn't a regular right. at the get-go. He recurred. He yeah. We had him on maybe twice a month or something until, duh, finally the penny dropped and we hired him on the, in the ninth year for every yep. single week. And, and was he, had he, was it something you just hadn't considered or he wasn't available, he didn't want to sign on? Well, he had done a couple of other shows, but right. in the meantime, he did, he had a variety show that didn't work and he had a comedy western that was filmed, which was a big mistake because Tim needs to be in front of an audience. You know, like... I have a funny story about Please. his ca- cancellation for this one. It's the funniest cancellation story I've ever heard. He was doing this show called Rango, and it was a fi- he was this inept cowboy, and it was filmed, and so and it was not very good. So he he's in the motorhome after they'd done one scene one day, and he's changing and putting on his boots and stuff like that. And there's a knock on the door, and it was an underling actually from ABC who was sent to tell him that the show was canceled. But he was nervous, and he, and he said, "I'm uh, Warren, Warren Tart or somebody from ABC, me, 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 Mr. Conway." <laughs> and Tim said, "Well, hi, how are you? What uh, what can I do for you?" And the guy said, uh, stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> you could pack up your dressing room. Stop doing this. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> he just didn't. He, so he took off his boots and went home. In fact, every show he'd done only ran about 13 weeks because that was the norm then. And then it was canceled. So at one point, he had a license plate that said 13 weeks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but what a genius. Who was who the woman? You're in a sketch and I, it was maybe one of the uh, um, uh, the one with uh, the, the the French revolutionary sketch. Nanette Fabre. Nanette Fabre. She, she was she was on our show nineteen times. Can you believe that? She was. Oh, she's still with us. Nanny's oh about. She's in her nineties now, oh and she was wonderful to work with. Absolutely wonderful. I you you are you see you're talking to someone who, you know, back then show business was show business. 
He did Broadway. Mm -hmm. You did uh, uh, sitcoms and variety shows like yours, the old great variety shows that you don't see as much anymore. You did game shows. Mm -hmm. Password. They're, they're past Alan Ludden. Uh, yes. You saw you saw Gene Rayburn with that antenna-like microphone. The match game. Uh, uh, Richard uh, uh, Dawson was Richard so smart. Dawson. Oh, my gosh. And who was the one that was Klugman's wife? Oh, um, oh uh, uh, Brett. Brett Summers. Brett. Those people. Because yeah. you knew they all had like a flask underneath of the course. desk and they were having a drink. Of <laughs> course. It was a party. <laughs> well, they did that with uh, Hollywood Squares. Hollywood Squares. They'd have, they would have Paul breaks Lind. and everybody would get snockered. Exactly. Yeah. We would do Paul Lind in my house to harass oh. my mother. <laughs> I had a childhood that was just immersed. It was just awash in this comedy. I watched you. I watched Gleason. I watched Alan Funt. I mean, I'm a kid born in 1958, mm -hmm. grew up in the 60s watching TV, pretty much abandoned TV after that. And then I go and I go to acting school and of course everyone wants to do O'Neill and Chekhov and Ibsen and we all want to plumb the depths of our soul and rightfully so. But then I do a sitcom and I realize I'm stealing from all those people that I saw. <laughs> yeah. And no one more than Corman. Oh. No one more than him. And he Brilliant. is so talented. Oh, he was wonderful. His timing mm -hmm. and his tone. He could, he, oh, he when could he do the Zach silly. Zachary Scott in, in Mildred Fierce. You know, <laughs> uh, unbelievable how he, smarmy he was. And he channeled Clark Gable. I yes. mean, I swear. He didn't know how he was. He was so nervous that week when we were going to do Went With the Wind. Uh, and he said, I can't do Gable. Can't. But the minute he got into the drag, he became, again, what I was talking about, he became. Like the costume led the way. Yeah, and that wig and, the, and the, the mustache and the whole outfit and everything, he became Clark Gable. The show is, of course, uh, I mean, I want to talk about it in terms of not how things have changed, because I think people beat that to death a little bit, but, I mean, you're a woman, it's your show, and did everybody uh, treat you? the way you wanted to be treated back then? Or was it all like, yeah, yeah, sure, honey, put Joe on the phone? That's about right. They did. Well, I it was my doing, too. You know, uh, I in, in that era, there the only one who really would speak up was Lucy. She was very strong. Right. Uh, but it's not in my nature to... Take over. Confront right. or anything. You know, like if, if a sketch wasn't working or something... Instead of like Gleason or Sid would say, look, look guys, this stinks. Now, come on, you got to fix it. But, but, you know, they would do that. I would say, uh, I'd call the writers down into the rehearsal hall and I'd say, you know, guys, um, I'm not doing this too well. Do you think maybe you could help me out with a, a different line here or there? Because, you know, otherwise I would have been a bitch in their you eyes. You felt that way. You know, you and I, way. yeah. And I, Who I, hired the writers? Joe. How many writers did you have? Well, uh, we had about seven for the comedy, and we had three special material writers who did all the original music and songs and medley right. and finales and so well, forth. Like SNL has. They have a music department. Right. And uh, so th that was fine. But I would have a say, and I'd walk into the writer's room. Arnie Rosen was our head writer. And I'd say, you know, I'd love to do Mildred Pierce. Can we do Mildred Pierce someday? Or I want to do Postman Always Rings Twice. Double Indemnity. <laughs> African Queen. Yeah. Love Story. All of those. Dial things. him for murder. You got Well, we never did that. Let me go back and do, <laughs> do that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so they would do that. But I did dream a sketch once. 
I dreamed. Can a, you say it on the air? What oh, that sure, sketch was? Sure. It was. I dreamed it, and we put it on the air. I was uh, <clears throat> in a shower. I mean, the door covered me, you know, and the water was coming down, and I was, uh, you know, getting wet and washing, and I'm singing. <clears throat> well, the moment I wake up, dream a little dream of you, and I'm singing. And the band is playing, so forth, and then I turn the water off, get a towel, kind of dry off, wrap it around myself, open the door, exit, and the camera pans in, and there are three musicians in tuxedos playing, <laughs> right. ringing, <Your> ringing wet. <laughs> Your band <laughs> yeah. is there. It worked. Oh, fantastic. It was very funny. So you had those writers, and how much writing did you do? I wrote, did, it, did it expand I, I, over the years where you became more confident? Well, so how about this and how about this? Well, you I wrote, we wrote on our feet. When we'd get the sketch, we'd start to rehearse, and uh, Harvey would say, you know, can I, I just feel like saying this instead of that. So we'd do it. I would do it, Tim, so forth. And I have to compliment our writers. They never complained. They came down, and if it was funny and working, they said, great, keep it in. Carol tells a story about her friend, Lucille Ball, addressing the writers of The Lucy Show when the pilot wasn't working. Lucy wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She told her kid, that's when they put the S on the end of my last name. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with Kristen Wiig, who early on preferred her scenes unscripted. For some reason, it was less scary to me than having words in front of me. Because I think when you're handed a script, you know that you're supposed to do it in a certain way, and people will think, like, how is she reading this? But when you're improvising, there's nothing to compare it to, and you can yeah, do whatever. There's no Blanche Dupois. Yeah, no. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Carol Burnett Show was an ensemble show that welcomed the biggest stars of television and film as its guests. Burt Reynolds, Jerry Lewis, Phyllis Diller, the Jackson Five, Cher, everyone wanted to work with Carol. That was what we talked about, you know, at the get-go. I said, you know, aside from having a rep company, I want to have guest stars, but I don't want to have a guest star, say, say like a Steve Lawrence, who would come on and just sing a song and maybe we'd see him next in the finale. I wanted to integrate everybody into the show. So many times, I mean, almost every sketch, almost every guest star we had, we put in sketches. So they were throughout the show. They were a member of the company. Yeah, correct. And so that's certainly what Bert was. And without naming names, when people came on, were some better than others? Yes. What did you do when they came on? Did you just kind of oh, no, diminish were, their role no, on the show? No, or? no. The, they were all pretty good, but some were— So you guys had a nose for that. Fabulous. Uh, Steve Lawrence is one of the funniest human beings in the world. Wow. And hysterical. And uh, he was one of my favorite sketch performers. We did Postman, Always Drinks Twice. We did African Queen together. We did Double Indemnity together. We did um, uh, uh, From Here to Eternity together. I mean, all—and he was brilliant— and so when we first went into syndication many years ago, uh, we had to cut all the music out. So it was only a half hour in syndication of the sketches because of cost, of clearances right. and all of that. So Steve, of course, all of his music was cut out and stuff, so forth. But one time, he had, during this time, he and Edie were in an airport one day, and these 
teenage girls ran up to him and said, you're that funny guy on the Burnett show. Oh, wow. And he used to say, if you're long, cut my song. Don't cut the sketch. Don't cut the sketch. Cut yeah. my song. Yeah. I can sing anytime. Yeah. But I can't do this anytime. Right. Uh, who were some of the other ones that came on that you— Ken Berry. <laughs> Wonderful. One Corporal Agard. Uh, he, but sing, dance, he was incredible. He's a showman. Well, he's, he's a great dancer, great hoofer. And he sings, and he's funny. He was adorable. And so we used him a lot. Bernadette Peters was the first— but she was a kid. She was the first person we asked—we signed— she wasn't on our very first show, but she was the first person we asked to be on our show. Um, who was someone that surprised you? Oh, gosh. If you can remember. Who was a movie star maybe that came on that surprised you? Betty Grable. No. We had Betty on. Because wow. I was raised in the 40s, and so, you know, she was my favorite movie star. And so I was thrilled when we got her on the show. She was funny. Very fun, very sharp, funny, wonderful sense of humor. And, and at the same time on that show was Martha Ray. So we had Betty oh. Grable and Martha Ray. On, and that was the first time we ever did the soap opera as the stomach turns. And it was, they were the in it. Turns. Yeah. Uh, your show uh, plays during a time of incredible political upheaval mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, the late 60s and the early 70s. Right. It doesn't get any more... Uh, tumultuous. Pretty heavy, that. yeah. And was that something that you cast an eye toward, or did you decide to ignore it completely? Well, it, I don't know if it was a decision to ignore it, but we uh, we just didn't do it. Right. Uh, Nothing political? No, because I, I don't know. I, I'm a clown. Right. And I just wanted to I was, laugh. I'm going to ask you about that. I just want belly, belly laughs. Right. That's what I wanted, you know, like a Sid Caesar. You know, I loved his show, right. and uh, so that's really. Do you consider what yourself a comic or a comic, a comedic actor? Comedic actor, right? Exactly, because <laughs> for you, that range. I'm, I want to get back mm -hmm. to the uh, the Vietnam era thing, but for you, you see, you come in, and of course, the wardrobe mm -hmm. and the, and the wig and the eyebrows make it in Mildred Fierce. Right. The moment you walk in, <laughs> yeah. But also, you have that core of uh, Joan oozing out of you when you walk on. Oh, I just, uh, I and just... then you dump out of it, and you you can go from one extreme to the other, mm -hmm. and then you're a clown, mm -hmm. and then you're doing voices, and you're the, the character's mm -hmm. collapsing in that mm -hmm. way, and kind of uh... you know in the um, the family sketch, Eunice and Mama and Ed, you know how... the sorry, get sorry, get sorry. Well, we did a we did about thirty five of those, and one time we had Maggie Smith on the show, and uh, so it the sketch was with the family, Maggie Smith was a school teacher, and she called Eunice and uh, Ed and Mama in to talk about the fact that Eunice and Ed's son was a bully. Bubba. Was, uh, you never saw him, but was a bubba in school, and she wanted to discuss it with us. Well, during the course of the sketch, she discovers why poor Bubba is that way. It's because of this horribly dysfunctional family, right? So I don't know whose idea it was in rehearsal, might have been Harvey's, might have been mine. I don't know. Uh, we decided just as an acting experiment, let's not do it as these characters. Let's do this sketch as if it's a, it's a one act. And so we did it. We didn't go over the top with the, the screeching and all of that. We did it very straight. Now, those sketches never had jokes in them. They were all about character. So when we did that, it was devastating. It was 
like doing a very serious one act when when uh, Eunice is trying to uh, defend her role as a mother. It was very, very mm. serious. So that was really great writing. And then we topped it off with the, the way we talked and all of that, <laughs> yeah, screaming like right. that and all that. Yeah. And then it became funny. It was a great piece of writing and a great acting experiment. We just did it in rehearsal. Now, to go back to that period, so your own uh, politics didn't enter into the show or your husband's. No. And you were better off for that. I, I think assume. so because now, you know, when we're seeing stuff, uh, it holds up even though it's 40 years old uh, because it's not topical. Right. You know, so in a way that, that was a blessing. We almost didn't get on the air because CBS didn't want us. Explain that. They didn't want what? Me to do a variety show. They didn't want a variety show or they didn't want you? They didn't want me to do a variety show. And they made that clear show. to Joe? Oh, well, what happened was when I left the Gary Moore show, I signed a 10-year contract with CBS. And there was a strange clause in the first five years of the contract. I remember this. Was that if I wanted to do an hour-long variety show, all I had to do was push the button and CBS would have to put on 31-hour pay-or-play variety shows with me. Yeah. So uh, In Hollywood, they call that the Burnett Clause, which means that's never happening again. That's true. Right. And so I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to – I would never exercise that clause. Well, five years were almost up. There was a week left, and I hadn't been working. And we were we just bought a house or put a down payment on a house in California. We had two little babies. And Joe and I looked at each other and we said, you yeah, know, we better push that button. It was the last week. There were a lot of—between Christmas and New Year's. So I called—we were in California, and I called the vice president here. I said, hi. He said, oh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Uh, how are you? I said, well, I'm calling to push that button. And he'd totally forgotten. He had no idea what I was talking about. And then they called me back the next day. He said, Carol, you know, it's not for gals. Comedy variety is a man's game. I, he, they wanted me to do a sitcom where I would play Agnes, and I said, I don't want to be the same person week after week. I want to, I want to do this, and they had to put us on the air. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this now. You partnered with your then-husband. Yes. But you didn't stay married to him. We were married for almost 20 years. Right, and you got divorced. Yes. But, but during the time you were married— that was a good thing. We were doing the show, yeah. You were doing the show. Mm -hmm. And you're doing the show with your husband. Mm -hmm. Day in, day out with your husband. Mm -hmm. See, I love that idea. And yeah. some people think that's anathema to them. They never want to do that. Well, what I, was that like? Well, uh, I kind of let him— To the him, extent you want to say. I let him be the boss. Right. Uh, and he protected you. Yeah, he totally protected I me. So. And, uh, you know, I could just come in and have fun. Right. He he let you. He worked with the writers and the this and the that. You know, the time that I would work with the writers was when we were uh, staging it, and that's when. Did I, he think you were funny? Yes. Did you crack him up? You, I'm not really that way in person, as they say in real life. Right. Don't you love that term? In, yes, in real what somebody life. like in real life? I'm very kind of quiet. And, and, and was he funny? Yeah, he had a great sense of humor. Yeah, he was. But he a, wasn't a performer in any way. Well, he actually uh, was a member of the Skylarks, which was a. Uh, I have no the, idea what that okay, is. Okay, the Skylarks was a great uh, musical group, 
like the Hilos and uh-huh. so forth, you know. And uh, he started out writing special material, uh, music material for the Dinah Shore show years ago. Wow. You know, your show was done in a different era in terms of standards and practices. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Did you sit there sometimes and go, Ew. No, uh, we, they left us alone. They left you alone. We had When one... you stick that sword in Harvey Corman's crotch, what did they say about that? It was an accident. <laughs> so it was, was it an accident? Oh, yes. You. Oh, you. No, one time, though, we, were doing, we had this wonderful censor. Uh, uh, Sat and you know Charlie Petty John God bless him and he was a hoot we just loved him anyway he never bothered with anything so Harvey and I were doing a sketch where I was a nudist and I was uh, being interviewed by him like uh, Edward R Murrow you know and I'm behind a fence that says keep out and I'm bare shouldered and I'm you know I'm leaning on the fence bare legs with high top sneakers on so it was jokes about a nudist colony right so uh, one of the lines was Harvey said. So tell me, how how do you nudist? What do you do for recreation? And my line was, well, we have dances every Saturday night, you know. And he said, oh, how do you nudist dance? And my line was, very carefully. Well, for some reason, the higher-ups, Charlie didn't mind that line. They said, no, that's too, too suggestive. Yeah. Come up with something else. Yeah. Are you ready? So this is what we came up with, and this is what went on the air. Uh, so what do you do? Well, we have dances every Saturday night. Well, how do you do this dance? Cheek to cheek. Right. I know. <laughs> and Is it that, any better? And they yeah. let, they let, let that and that was funnier. You know, there's material that gets uh, um, revived, and it comes up in none more so than Annie. Oh. And you are the Miss Hannigan, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thank you. And who directed that film? John Huston. What was that like for you? Well, it's very funny. Um, you know, he was not really uh, into musicals. or you Right. Know. <laughs> right. And That's I what have, I'm asking. Yeah. I have a theory. Ray Stark produced it. Of course. Okay. And I have a theory. Ray Stark never liked to get a no out of anybody. I think, this is all in my mind, that Ray called John Huston to play Daddy Warbucks. I, that's my theory, and because he would have been a wonderful daddy sure. Warbucks, and uh, he did. Mr. Houston didn't want to do it, so Ray, not wanting to get a no, said, "Well, then, how about directing it?" <laughs> right. That's my theory. Right. You know, but he and was. And Finney lovely. did the movie. Finney did the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters. We were the villains, the three sure. villains, and uh, I love doing it. I love doing uh, uh, and. Something that was just great fun was we would sing live. I sang Little Girls live. It was not pre-recorded. The orchestra was pre-recorded. So you were lip-syncing. I was not lip-syncing. So they would play they would the play music the for you to sing to? and I sang. They played a track and you sang live. And I sang live. And, uh, it's a great number. You and him doing you doing that and him doing Easy Street. Right. How was John to work Never with? Me. Two takes, that's it, print. That's it? Yeah. He knew what he wanted. He had the right people. One of the funniest pieces of direction I ever got was when I went to him and I said, uh, oh, oh, I talked to him. I said, you know, I think she should drink because she's— Really drink. I mean, <laughs> right. That she should have a little, you know, be, you know 
knock them back every so often because she's miserable, you know, and hates these kids and so forth. So the only kind of uh, solace she gets is to knock them back a little bit, you know. And so he, he said, well, that's a very good idea, dear. Yes, that's good. And so I said, okay. So I'm not going to play her drunk, but I'm right. going to play her like she, you know, she kind of— She needs one. She needs one. And so <laughs> the first scene was with Hannigan and um, uh, the secretary who was coming in to get to uh, get Annie, you know, and so I said, Mr. Hugh, call me John, dear. Uh, Mr. Hugh, uh, John, uh, how, how do you see this? How do you want me to? Do? He said, he said, just cavort, dear. Just cavort. I had. Uh, <laughs> we finished. Uh, we wrapped. But what they did, they made a big mistake. They filmed Easy Street. With 400 dancers and singers on the easy street with a monkey grinder, and uh, we would jump on, on um, uh, fire escapes and jump all it, it just was overkill. At that time, they spent a million dollars on that one number. It took a week to shoot. And Tim and, and uh, Bernadette, and I said, this is just, mm, mm. it should just be the three villains in the orphanage because that's the way it was in the original. They are killing this song. So, but, okay, so it wrapped. So I went back to Honolulu, and uh, I had um, a procedure done on my chin. Uh, I had always wanted a bit because I had a weak chin, and so I, I, this oral surgeon— Put an implant. No, no, he pulled it—somehow he pulled this out three millimeters. You didn't all. have the full John DeLorean implant. No, no implant. No, okay. uh, so anyway, so I had a little more of a chin, which I, I felt— was good. It wasn't Kirk Douglas. It was just a little more of a chin. Okay. So had that done by this oral surgeon in Honolulu. Now, two months later, uh, I get a call from Ray Stark. We're going to reshoot the Easy Street number. I said, well, that's great. I said, but Ray, you know, now I I have a chin. <laughs> and he said, Oh, and I explained it to him. He's oh, with all that Hannigan drag, you know, you're not going to worry about it. Also, it's not going to be picture to picture. It'll be a totally separate thing. So, but we're just going to do it with the three of you in the orphanage. And I said, great. So we all flew back, and we report to work. And there's John Houston sitting there, and so forth. And we're going to shoot it. And he said, well, uh, this is what I want to do. He said, I would like to take it from when Carol ran into the closet to get Annie's locket. When she comes back out, that's where we'll pick it up. And I thought, uh-oh. So I went up and I said, Mr. Hugh, call me John. Uh, Mr. Houston, uh, two months ago when I ran into the closet, I didn't have a chin. Right. And now I'm, and now I'm ready to, to do come. Lonely Are the Brave. <laughs> exactly. Now you're picking up where I come out of the closet and yeah. I have a chin. I just thought I would call that to your attention. And here is what he said. He thought and thought, and he said, oh, well, well, dear, then just come out looking determined. <laughs> Is that a great piece of direction? I'm going to remember that. <laughs> That's clever. Um, I, I, I want to say this. You know who you are to all of us who grew up watching TV then? And I can say to you uh, from the bottom of my heart and without equivocation what people think of when they think of you when they think of you as, you're the most talented woman that was ever on TV. You're oh, the most talented Alec. woman that oh. was ever on TV. You really are. Because there's a lot of people who are like you, and they did some things that were great, 
but none of them did as much as you did, as well as you did. Oh, wow, thank and you. And had the warmth and the sweetness and the nut and the insanity. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming there's some therapist out there who must know something about you out there in Beverly Hills. <laughs> we won't get into that. But you are the oh, most wow. talented woman that was ever on TV, ever. Well, excuse me, I've got to go now and buy a bigger hat. <laughs> <laughs> Just look determined. Just look determined. Just look dear. determined today, dear. Just cavort. Just cavort out there in New York. I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to have a laugh or sing a song. If you've seen the Carol Burnett show, then you recognize this tune. Carol ended her show each week singing this song that her former husband and then producer wrote for her. The Screen Actors Guild will bestow the 2015 Life Achievement Award upon Carol Burnett early next year. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Here's the Thing is produced by WNYC Radio in association with Stony Brook Southampton Graduate Arts.